Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. So, welcome to Baba Yaga! <laughs> this week, we are here to talk all about youths once again. We've talked about a general coming of age. We've talked about misbehaving, wayward, rebel without a cause, young adults. And now, we're going to talk about young people working the first jobs, gaining advanced education, basically what your late teens, early 20s would look like in the past in terms of basically your career. Gotta get that bread. Stacks on stacks on stacks. And sometimes just literal bread. (laughs) Alright, so I think as per usual, I'm going to start it off with my, you know, most of the things I'm drawing from this week are going to be from the medieval and early modern period. And then I will hand it off to Margot to take it away across the Atlantic. Across the sea. So I'm going to break this down mostly by socioeconomic status of the time. Because there's really three... Like, you're doing one of three things if you're a young adult. You know, and provided you aren't, I don't know, like, the heir apparent of your kingdom. In which case, yeah, fine, you're doing, like nobility stuff but i'm talking about like normal people the other 99.9 percent of the population chances are you are either going to be working as a servant or other form of hired help you're going to be an apprentice or you are going to go off to university so let's start out with being hired help slash servants slash maids slash farmhands just any kind of hired help that people would bring into their home. So, when you were in your, you know, mid to late teens, if you were from maybe a poorer family or a peasant family, you were very, very likely going to go and become hired help at someone else's house. This would basically, as we've talked about previously, fulfill a handful of objectives of it's going to broaden your social circles a little bit. You know, you maybe get a chance to meet some other people. You're going to be still having supervision um, that, you know, rather than, but rather than only having, you know, maybe, rather than it being your parents and your family and your neighbors, you're going to go out into the world and, you know, maybe have other people also, you know, teaching you things and you're learning some skills that you otherwise wouldn't have. And thirdly, you would be earning some money, which would be important so that when you reach your, you know, average of mid-twenties-ish, like, on average, that is when a, like, regular commoner person would get married, because that's about the time when you would have the skills and financial stability to set up your own, you know, little farmstead kind of situation. So what would this really look like on day-to-day? Well, If you were a teenage girl, this would for, you know, by and large, you would be looking into some form of domestic work. So you might work in the kitchens of a wealthier household, in the dairy, the gardens. You might clean the house or do laundry, make clothes, any number of kind of domestic skills. And when I'm talking about wealthier households, I don't just mean like nobility or aristocracy. Mm -hmm. I'm talking even just like the better off farmers in your area because again we have to remember right like if you are you know running a sizable farm and you are the you know the the married woman of the house who is Mm -hmm. running this you don't have like a vacuum or an oven or a dishwasher like you need a person who's going to do stuff yeah And often, yeah, if you had, like, if your farming endeavors and your land basically was prosperous enough that you could afford to hire on extra help, 
that is what you would do so that you could basically keep up with running that kind of a household, right? Like, because again, if you're having a bigger farm, then you would be hiring on, you know, teenage boys and young men, and they would be the hired farmhands, right. tending sheep, goats, horses, maybe shearing sheep, making hay, helping to bring in the harvest. So you would also need to make sure that you had enough, like, young women on hand who could do all of the domestic stuff that we take for granted so especially things like we don't wouldn't even consider like somebody needs to fetch water chop and bring in firewood keep fires going steadily all day and keep them safe yeah but you would also be learning and practicing things like tending the kitchen garden and know how to harvest the produce how to preserve it for the winter if this farm was prosperous enough to have cows and goats then you would obviously have to then take that milk and make it into butter and cheese caring for chickens and collecting their eggs you'd also be learning how to and and practicing basically preparing wool and flax then weaving those fibers into woolen cloth and linen cloth sewing this fabric into garments and into other you know bed linens and other household linens and then mending clothes as needed you'd also have to wash clothes by hand and if you needed soap to do that guess what you can't go to the store <laughs> there's soap. yeah there's no tide detergent you have to like get the ashes and mix it with fat and like the does the because like uh yeah. wood ash mixed with Fats will make like a rudimentary soap. So, yeah. You're cooking from actual scratch over a fire with like some pots and pans. You're doing a lot of sweeping, like a lot of scrubbing floors and scrubbing down window panes and that kind of thing to try to keep it sort of semi cleanly in there. Yeah. And last but not least, you'd be looking at things like how to brew home brews, so beers, ales, maybe some. Like dandelion wines, probably not grape wine, unless you are from a grape growing region. But the point is, you needed this as an important source of both potable drinking yeah, beverage exactly. and as a way to preserve food and provide extra calories. And you would also most likely be learning on the job, basically, first aid and medicinal herbal remedies so that would be everything from learning how to tend wounds how to take care of the sick how to mix up different teas and tinctures bring down a fever dress wounds set bones perhaps like it really depends on what your situation is um and again if you were so th the whole point of this is that you are both earning money but also if you are you know, a young woman, this is getting you prepared to be able to, you know, be the woman of the house in your future married life and right. married home life. And, you know, it was the same for young men. If you were hired help on a farm, chances are you would grow up to eventually have your own little cottage and plot of land and you would farm that. Um, so there's... As we see, obviously, a lot of work to be done before the advent of labor-saving devices when the closest thing to a labor-saving device was, like, you maybe have a mule or a donkey <laughs> that can, like, carry some stuff for you. You have a horse, maybe some oxen, but, like, you know, exactly. <laughs> You're really, uh, th there's there's not much in the way of, like, luxuries in Is that sense. The, the, the new plow that allows you to, like, turn... Oh yeah. <laughs> oh. Do we want to talk about the heavy-wheeled plow? <laughs> yeah, that one. The 13th century invention that revolutionized everything. <laughs> but seriously, around the year 1200, they came up with the idea that hey, instead of having these like plows that kind of barely scratch the surface, we're going to make plows that are super heavy and can like churn that soil, yeah. which means you can get way better crop yields. And basically from about the year I want to say like one like from when that comes on the scene around I want to say 1150 1200 I don't know 
<laughs> sometime around there basically like, like i know anything about the <laughs> middle ages i mean you're the one who brought up the heavy plow <laughs> one of my favorite inventions because uh it basically overnight transforms like how much food people can have yeah and like just calorie intake goes way up mortality goes down birth rates go way 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 up and like yeah. live births go way up because people are less likely to go without food and like the it's it's part of it's not the the entire reason, but it's part of the reason why between like 1,000 and 1,400, sorry, 1,000 and 1,300, the population of Europe essentially doubles just yeah. because they all start eating a lot better. It's also because they figure out three-field crop rotation. Yeah. <laughs> Woo, having flashbacks to like I middle am. school social studies. Like, whew. It's just, it's fascinating because they figure yeah. out that like, basically i mean they wouldn't use these words for it but they're like ah if we plant legumes like beans and peas they seem to replenish the soil yeah which we know they fix nitrogen um so they're like oh wheat really depletes soil but legumes give soil back nutrients yeah and if we let a field lie fallow for a year, then that gives our animals a place to eat. And then also they poop all over it. Yeah. And then that fertilizes it. And then we just we just get so much also, more food. Also, if you rotate within that fallow, well, yeah, field, exactly. If you rotate yep, the yep. animals that are allowed to graze at certain yep, times, yep. they also provide different yes. nutrients in the manure. And yep. Home. Oh boy! So much food, so <laughs> delicious. Yum yum yum. This is a like wild aside from our already like tangent. Um, but did you see on the social medias mm. that uh, some bro reinvented the water wheel? <laughs> is this like that guy who reinvented the root cellar? Who was like, you can put a fridge underground, yes. and then like my great grandparents, like their ghosts are just coming back, like having dug a hole in the <laughs> ground to store all their fruits and vegetables, being like, "Am I a joke to you?" Yeah. So there was this like post that I saw where like these like technology, this technology blog was like, this guy has this like revolutionary way to harness hydropower where you don't have to create a dam, and it's 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 a spinning it's a spinning wheel that's then hooked up to like a, a, a generator right so like the it's hydropower coming from it's a it's a water wheel and then a bunch of like medievalists got on it and were pointing out that uh they didn't have a channel to appropriately like divert the water to the wheel to increase the water pressure to increase the amount of energy that the water wheel gets when it's turning so it's just like you're getting the minimum amount of energy because this dude doesn't understand how freaking water wheels work and it was like great job guy great job you invented a worse water wheel <laughs> yeah essentially like you did worse than medieval peasants which again i just again people back in the day weren't stupid like no and that's we not tend what i'm to saying think, but I'm oh no no but i'm just saying like i think that's that's my whole thing though is that like we tend to think like ah yes like we can just like you know, we're always going to just, like, keep going and, like, finding a better solution. It's like, sometimes you don't have to build a better mousetrap, my guy. Yeah. Like, sometimes sometimes someone did it. Yeah. Like, you, stop just well, assuming the, thing, the like, things that already exist are bad. The first guy who made the, like, water-powered mm. mill, I'm mm. like, dude, you are a plus. galaxy brain yeah. genius. But this guy, oh, yeah. who had all of human history exactly. of water wheels and then made a really shitty one and tried to pass it off as, like, new green technology is just, just radically disappointing because it's, like, that you had all of human history yep. plus supercomputers. Yeah. 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 And what you made was worse. I don't I don't understand that getting into the meat. Anyway, that was my tangent about um, anyway, medieval farming and food technology. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's important to point out that, you know, sometimes sometimes you really don't need to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Wheel and axle, doing great. Going strong. <laughs> Real job. 10 out of 10 invention, whoever came up with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, between 
between the water wheel and the root cellar, I mean, any day now, I'm just expecting someone to be like, guess what, guys? I've created a way to transport goods over long distances in a green energy. And we'll be like, how? And they'll be like, have you considered we could put a horse in front of a box? And we'll be like, a wagon? I'm just, I'm really... And then you just need to feed the horse off of the land. Sustainable. No more fossil fuels. <laughs> on that note, let's talk about apprenticeships. <laughs> yeah, back on track. So anyway, the system of apprenticeship as being... There were some analogs in the classical world, but the ones that we're going to talk about essentially developed in the like high to late Middle Ages. So, you know, we're talking like 1100, 1200, 1300 is when this right. is all kind of forming in Europe and throughout the medieval world. Because basically what you would have would be your guild. So you have a craft guild and they had guilds for everything. And a guild was basically a like like a super union because not mm-hmm. only it wasn't like a guild wasn't just involved with like your working conditions guilds would also do stuff like you know if you if if you died and you left a widow and children like the guild had to take care of them if yeah. you had a feud with someone else the guild was sworn to come to your aid if you had to fight your enemy <laughs> so like the the point is though basically in terms of labor and working Craft guilds were an organization of workers who did the same type of work and craft. So this could be, you know, butchers, blacksmiths, apothecaries, anything you can think of. I have a a whole exhaustive list here. So, I mean, like, the main difference, I think, between a union, right, is that it's a a union is a collection of workers advocating for themselves against the, like, boss and or owner. Yeah. Whereas at a guild, they are workers, but also owners. Yes, exactly. Who are working together for the benefit of like the entire craft yes the benefit of the entire craft and also for the benefit of guild members because yeah uh, you know this would escalate even into like if you like you were obliged to like you know Again, if there if there was like a blood feud, you had to go out and like fight these people with your guild mates. Like yeah. you couldn't just like back down. So the guild and would also be, like yeah. someone couldn't just come in and like be a blacksmith. Yeah, no, and be like, I'm gonna make everything cheaper, yeah. or like worse or anything. Exactly, because the guild would be like, you're not a member of the guild. Mm-hmm. We're gonna get all the guild members over and burn your house down. Yeah, pretty much. Did Did they burn their house down? I mean, they probably weren't going to burn your house down. It would be more like we're going to chase you out of town, and there's like fifty of us and one of you. Come back to your house. Yeah, exactly. You will be basically chased away, and you need to leave. And you know, at other times, um, the other thing is guilds were enforced legally. So if you were, say, a baker, and you come into town and you start baking, and you are not in the guild the guild can then take you to the city government and say this part like basically you're operating without a license like it was taken very seriously that no you have to follow these specific like guild protocol because guilds were also about enforcing quality control yeah i was just gonna ask about that since you brought up bakers because i know bakers are like Oh yeah, this is a whole thing because obviously the bread. Of his, the scandals of history having to do with bakers are incredible, mind-boggling. Yeah, the reason that it is called a baker's dozen when you get thirteen is because bakers would, you could get into serious trouble if you undersold your bread, right? So if right. you say you're getting like, you know, if a standard dozen buns, right, is yeah. supposed to 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 come to, you know. I don't know, two pounds of bread, right? Like two, not British pounds, but as in pounds as in like a... It's supposed to come to one kilogram of bread. Yeah. And it turns out that you sold something underweight. The guild and the city government could come after you. Like you could be in the stocks where everyone will point Mm -hmm. and laugh at you. You could like face a lot of consequences. You could face fines. So it became custom that bakers, if someone asked for a dozen, would throw in an extra. Just, just to make sure. to avoid because yeah. they're like I am better off losing 
the like like I am better off losing a little bit of money on that mm-hmm. than potentially being fined or being like publicly punished. Right. There has been like there was a lot of like because bread was such a staple food that like if you were overcharging for bread or if you yeah. were baking subpar bread because sometimes you know bakers would try to fudge the weights of their bread by like putting in you know like dirt or sand or like stuff that wasn't stuff that looked like flour once yeah. you baked it in but wasn't actually flour because yeah. flour is really expensive yes so if you were caught doing that you know you could be put in the stocks you could be like taken through the street and like you know kind of game of thrones style like shame 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 <laughs> like everyone in the town gets to be like look at jim like he was selling us bread for too much also on an off note look up the uh, the president's choice loblaws bread <laughs> scandal in canada <laughs> where it turns out they were overcharging us for bread for like a decade and then everyone got paid out like a $25 gift card and and apparently that yeah. calls it good and i just think we should bring back the old medieval you know where we run all of the all anyone who was any everyone who was responsible for selling <laughs> overpriced bread slash underweight bread they just have to walk through the streets and everyone gets to yell shame and throw rotten tomatoes well we they didn't have tomatoes in the middle who ages is that but family you know that owns the propago stuff Oh, the Westons. The Westons. I knew it. They were, they're like the Canadian Waltons. Yes, exactly. They own like all the food in Canada, essentially. <laughs> That's not an exaggeration. <laughs> Unless you grow the food on your balcony or like your backyard yourself, the Westons definitely own that food. Um, so yes, I, I would love to see... Let's parade li- all of all the Westons. Of <laughs> yes. All of the Westons have to be paraded through all the major cities in Canada. And all the towns, you know, just any any municipality. And everyone yeah. gets to yell shame as they walk by. Yeah. Maybe we put them in the stocks, you know. That is that's the medieval way of dealing with things, and there's a simplicity to it. <laughs> you know? We don't need to drag this through a court system. <laughs> well, I mean they had a court system yeah. to do it, but you know, they, they made it fast. Quick, snap it. Exactly. This it wasn't a whole drawn out suit, you know? It was like you're selling underweight bread to the stocks. <laughs> Done. But anyway, let's go back to the structure of actual guilds. Right. So the guild would be, members of the guild who ran it would be master craftsmen. So those are the people who are, you know, entitled to have their own workshop in the city. And they would have apprentices and journeymen, as it stands today, right? An apprentice is like the lowest level baby person who is just starting out and then a journeyman is like you're on your way to being a master craftsman then master craftsman is like yes you are qualified to have your own your own workshop and you can make your own stuff and the guild supports you and gives you our seal of approval so typically a master craftsman was entitled to employ young people as apprentices who were typically a very inexpensive form of labor because they could work in exchange for the master craftsmen providing food, lodging, and formal training. Right. Um, in some cases, the parents of the apprentice would also like kick in some fees. So it really depended on, um, you know, region and also your social status of what would be available. By and large, most apprentices would have been male, but there were some guilds that actually were open to women. So there were crafts such as being a seamstress, a tailor, a baker, or a cord wainer, which is a, like, a worker of fine leathers. So, you know, maybe, like, belts, like, fancy, you know, like, you know, you're you're not making, like, the shoes. Yeah, because that's a cobbler. Exactly. Like, you're making, like, you know, kind of the fancier leather work. Right. Um, am I forgetting anyone? No, I think that's about it. Whereas for... What about um, brewing? Brewing was... That didn't... Did that not have a guild? It... Okay, brewing did have a guild, but... I'm just throwing you all oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, here no, now. No, 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 you're fine. Interruptions. Basically, um, brewing was like kind of a weird middle ground because Mm -hmm. there were 
a lot of the time women were the ones doing homebrew and often would sell their homebrew. And yes, you are right that in some cases, brewing guilds would allow women in. In other cases, they would not allow women to join the formal guild, but you also, like, couldn't stop women from basically selling their own homebrew at, like, a market because it's not, you know, if they're not trying to pass it off as guild-made beer as long as they're saying, like, yeah, this is my extra homebrew, extra wink, wink, nudge, (laughs) nudge, I made a giant cauldron of this. (laughs) You know, it's like, well, we can't really, like, it's definitely, like, one of those weird, like, legal areas. And I mean, just in general, there's a lot of that, like, when it comes to women's work not being accepted into a lot of guilds, you know, where there is that overlap of, like, okay, yeah, if you're a blacksmith, you definitely super duperty need to be in the blacksmith guild. Like, yeah. you know, you can't just be, like, blacksmithing on the side in my backyard. Mm-hmm. But there were guilds, say, like, basket makers, where it's, like, yeah. lots of women made baskets and probably sold them, but they maybe weren't in the guild, so that yeah. was its own. Or, like, the linen trade, where, yes. like, women were excluded in the 16th century from mm-hmm. the guilds, and so then they couldn't, like, export linen. Yep. So it's basically a lot of, you know, as we will see later in history again but still and made again. Linen is what I'm getting at, right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry. Like, no, no, but just like saying that, yeah, I, I, I should have clarified from the beginning that like women did a lot of this same work, and especially because for the most part, this would end up becoming a family business, right? Like, if you're married to the village blacksmith, yeah, you know your sons are going to learn blacksmithing but you and your daughters also have to have at least somewhat rudimentary understanding of how stuff works so that you can help around yeah like the family shop basically yeah um and there actually are um when we talk about widowhood later there actually are provisions made in some guilds that the widow of a master craftsman can keep his shop open and still have like journeymen and apprentices work out of it and in some cases she can even take over the shop because it's kind of there was that like implied status of like okay fine you weren't an apprentice who went through it but you were married to a master craftsman and worked by his side all this time so you know what what's up exactly you know what's up and also uh, presumably he still had journeymen and apprentices under him who need to finish their tenure basically so you know again that would in in different cases obviously this is going to shake out differently but especially with things like things that would be things that women would have been doing anyways like say candle makers or again basket weavers um you know, anybody doing weaving, seamstress, tailor, like, you could definitely have have that gray area. Yeah. But in most cases, an apprentice would usually begin between 10 to 15 years old, although it might be a little older. Typically, it's going to be in, like, late teens. Like, 10 would be quite, quite young, but it could happen. And basically, you would live in the master craftsman's household, and... You know, as we talked about before, this is part of why households would employ so many, like, hired helpers, basically. Because, you know, a household was not just a nuclear family. A household yeah. was not mom, dad, and 2.5 kids. It was, it it could also be, like, mom, dad, journeyman, apprentices, hired maids to help right. run the house hired farmhands to help bring everything in cooks um you could also have boarders who would be staying with you you might have traveling like scholars who would board with you kind of thing or other travelers who'd board with you so you know it when we talk about a household this is not a like yeah 1950s nuclear family household you might also have extended family living with you depending on you know circumstances basically (laughs) You know, you might have your unmarried sister come live with you or your elderly mother. Like, these are, these are, 
families that are not necessarily all related by blood, yeah. basically. Nieces and nephews yep. being, like, sent from house to house. Also, like, you know, orphaned children was pretty... It, it was pretty common that you would probably, at some point, take in, you know, somebody's orphaned child because <laughs> you're... Well, I mean, that's just yeah. the reality is, like, okay, well, my... You know, my my brother my my brother is dead. His wife just died, and they have three, you know, underage children still. Yeah. Well, I guess somebody has to take in the kids, right? Yeah. Um. So that's the type of household we're thinking of. And for the most part, these guilds to give a like brief list could be everything from apothecaries, armorers, bakers, brewers, butchers, carpenters, cloth workers, dyers. So people who actually like dye fabric was its own thing tanners to which is like processing leather leather. masons not those kind of masons you know like actual (laughs) stone masons masons. (laughs) saddlers because somebody needed to make saddles somebody needed they had to have skinners like people who would skin animals you would have wheelwrights and all you did was make wheels you'd have coopers who make barrels so again it's this very very like highly skilled craft that you would be you know you would know everything about how to do it inside and outside yeah last but not least you might go on to receive an education at a university Um, and that was not necessarily only for wealthy people because in it really depended on what university you were looking at because (laughs) In some cases, the university was paid for by the church, so the church yeah. actually paid for the teachers. So if you were deemed, you know, intelligent enough and like <laughs> promising enough, you could probably find a way to go. Whereas in other cases, it was the students themselves would have to pay tuition, yeah. basically. So it really depends on your locale and what the situation is looking like. Um, the other thing is because because these universities so i'm I'm getting ahead of myself (laughs) university is generally regarded as like when we talk about a university we are talking about the formalized institution and it had its origin in the medieval european and christian setting that is not to say that there were not places of higher learning outside of you know the medieval christian world but when we are talking about university with like like capital u universities um we are looking at the system that we operate under now originated from this system not necessarily like the uh like the scholar path in china where it was like a governmental system exactly scribes and scholars yeah yeah exactly or when you're looking at the types of schools that were set up within the Islamic world, right? Yeah. Like, that is not... I, I just want to be very clear that I am not saying that there were not places of higher learning outside of Europe. I am saying just that when we are talking specifically about universities and the way that we think about them today, this is their origin right. point. Um, because prior to these established universities, European higher education was taking place in cathedral or monastic schools. So, you know, learning was essentially done by monks and nuns who would teach classes. Mm -hmm. But as you get more and more growth of population and the urbanization of European society in the 12th and 13th century, there's more and more demand both for a professional clergy and for, in general, more opportunities for higher education yeah so you start to see more and more the development of these universities and at first they were not what we would think of today as in like a physical facility right like there's not a campus going on Mm -hmm. classes would just be taught wherever there was space available so that might be in a church that might be in a home yeah. Because university does not refer to the physical space like okay. of buildings. It is the collection of individuals banded together as a universitas. So like the universal... Uh, yeah. Got it. Yeah. But, you know, soon enough, the universities 
realized, hey, we could probably <laughs> rent or buy or construct buildings specifically made for the purposes of teaching. And it turns out if you just sit on that land <laughs> for a long time, you can rent it out later and make a lot of money also. <laughs> Fun fact, look into how Oxford and Cambridge, like, they have yeah. a wild amount of land that they've just had forever, but it's kind of a scandal. It's it's very scandalous. The <laughs> Oxford and Cambridge time. Scandal off. But like I mean, like it's like an an issue of of discussion in the UK that like oh, yeah. that they have all of this land that they're making money off of and they're like yeah, Still charging of, yeah. out the wazoo for tuition. Yeah. And Anyway, let's go back to which of these universities were the first. So, first one that we can find evidence for, basically. <laughs> I cannot tell. Again, they were not physical places right. in the earliest parts. But the earliest university of these types that we're talking about would have been the University of Bologna, from which would have been founded in 1088. The University of Paris followed in 1150. Then Oxford in 1167, University of Medina, 1175, uh, University of Palencia in 1208, Cambridge in 1209, Salamanca in 1218, Montpellier in 1220, and University of Padua in 1222. I could go on, but, you know, I think you get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bunch of places in, like, England, France... Spain, Italy. Portugal, and Italy. Like, yeah, Western Europe. Exactly. Now, also, if you think that the, you know, um, the commercialization of universities is new, <laughs> no, no. The thing we have to remember is that a lot of these universities would actually change up their teachers and would market themselves based on who was teaching. Oh. So universities would compete to have the best and the most popular teachers. So you would publish your list of scholars saying, you know, okay, this is who's going to be teaching at the University of Paris this year. Yeah. So you should all come here and pay us to teach you because we have the best ones. <laughs> um, so for example, you have P uh, the students of Peter of Abelard who followed him to Melun, Corbeil, and then Paris. So... Right. A lot of the time, these universities, because again, they're in the beginning, they're just um, like groups of people, basically, right. you could actually move around a lot. And this becomes important because sometimes there would be issues where you would leave. So the University of Paris, for example, would not actually take place in Paris. And this is specifically because <laughs> students had a very special legal status. Okay. So, because students were, you know, studying ostensibly in most cases, like, even if you did not become a cleric mm -hmm. in the end, as a student, you had the legal status of a cleric. Which means, under canon law, A, women were prohibited from being admitted to universities because right. women can't be clerics. Right. And secondly, that means that students had the same legal protection as the clergy, which means they could not be tried in a secular court. Right. They could only be tried in the ecclesiastical courts. Okay. They were thus immune from any corporal punishment. And it also essentially gave <laughs> students in urban areas free reign to just break whatever secular laws they wanted because the only people who were going to go after you were basically your school teachers who would probably give you a little slap on the wrist. Right. So students very quickly and to this day, became notorious for <laughs> drunkenness, you know, theft, and also rape and murder. So, <laughs> maybe not Excellent. so much the murder anymore, but, you know, I feel like you know, the rest of it, things haven't changed that much. Not at all. And this often led to, obviously, uneasy tensions with secular <laughs> authorities. Because, you know, you would suddenly have all these young lads roaming the city drinking fighting stabbing each other raping people but if the town tried to crack down on it 
the schoolmasters and students would sometimes strike by leaving a city and not returning for years, which means that they are not spending their money in that city, they're not right. patronizing anything in that city, and that actually happened at the University of Paris. Is the University of Paris strike of 1229 after a riot left a number of students dead. The <laughs> university went on strike and they did not return for two years. So, essentially, being a university student has always been buck wild. <laughs> and it's pretty new that we all decided that we were going to have buildings and settle down and not just leave town when we got <laughs> mad about something. <laughs> and now that we've covered the Middle Ages and some of the early modern period, because let's be real, a lot of this carries over into the early modern period. You know, obviously some changes occur when you add in, like, the New World and Protestants and stuff, but you know, yeah, overall, they're still students are still doing the same thing whether they're technically immune or not. Yeah. And now we're gonna go on over to the New World. Yeah. New World in air quotes. <laughs> new World. Yeah, so I mean, um, there obviously were systems of education pre-contact uh, that don't super fit into this category. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about like earlier public stuff. That's very fair. I mean, you know, I just, I can't believe you mean to tell me that people were out here having education that didn't involve murder. <laughs> like, have you really gone to university <laughs> If there's not at least one riot involved. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so at, so at some point in time, I would like to have uh, somebody who is an expert in this particular field come on and talk about, like, indigenous North American systems of knowledge and the ways that that knowledge is, like, transmitted. Um, but that is not my particular, like, speciality. And so, yeah, I'm going to talk about some more generic stuff. We're doing our best. We are <laughs> contacting guests left and right, so that yeah. will hopefully be coming at you soon. Yeah. One day in the future. <laughs> um, so for in in general, uh, these systems sort of migrate with colonists. Um, they are not always necessarily connected with their European counterparts, um, in particular, like, guilds are very regionalized um, and sort of, like, migrate and become other types of organizations. Um, and the influence of the church sort of dictates a lot of what actually happens in a particular area. So if we look at... For example, right, the Puritans in New England have a very specific, like, Protestant setup. Um, they do end up, you know, forming universities and things like that. Uh, and especially, like, specifically their seminaries for educating um pastors like the reverends that would come to set up churches because there's a very specific way in which a puritan or calvinist church can be established they each have to have a specific covenant between all of the people and then all of those people and god so it's like very complicated um everybody has to be what's called a visible saint it, puritans are wild um but that that system, like the the day to day, if you were not going to become a reverend or pastor, or you weren't, you know, the second son of some sort of merchant, you were not likely to be going to get one of these educations. Um, that's very different, you know, a few miles north in Quebec, where you have the influence of the Catholic Church, which throughout the late 18th and 19th century um, really dedicates itself to education. Um, a large portion of the uh, Catholic orders that come to Quebec are Jesuits. Uh, Jesuits just love learning. <laughs> they can be real assholes, but they just love learning. They just... They <laughs> They just want to watch the world learn. 
Oh my god, stop. Um, so they there's a, a lot of um, universities and seminaries set up in Quebec as well, um, specifically in the French language, and also uh, very focused on a Catholic education. Um, in the 19th century, especially, the universities become places where the like elite and owning class of French Quebecers gain legitimacy um, after Quebec become has like at that point for like what is it two hundred and seventy years or something been a colony of yeah, exactly. Great Britain. Um, they gain sort of legitimacy and and can form a like French government. Um, so from these universities. The church gets really anxious about it at one point in time when there's like so many of the young men who come to be educated in these universities decide to go into politics or law or these like more profitable professions where they can really make a name for themselves on a larger Canadian stage. Um, because they're like, they're not, we're not going to have enough priests. We're not going to have enough priests to like make everybody super Catholic. They're all becoming like politicians. Um, you think you have not enough priests then? <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get started. <laughs> yeah. So, um, there was just a ludicrous number of priests to clarify yeah. that for anyone who doesn't know any Quebec history. Just, yeah. There like, was a lot of, so many, so many just, like, every, every third guy priest. Yeah. Maybe not that many, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Um, but yeah, this is where you get, like, the, the generation of the, like, Quebec patriots who try multiple times to, like, create the nation of Quebec as something that's separate from Canada. Um, and that was a specific, like, track you could go on if you want to listen to more about how those universities worked in, like, specific, um, the Lurielle episode with Max Heyman uh, goes into the Le Collage de Montreal um, which is uh, one of the colleges that still exists in Montreal today uh, but also like the it talks he talks about the university system these like the whole uh, private education system that goes on in Quebec in um, the rest of the colonies, Things could either be really good or, like, really bad, depending on your economic status, essentially. Um, so part of that is, like, the ties into the way in which you get to the colonies. So this is either in the New World, in Australia, in any of these sort of, like, the British Empire um, settler, colonies. settler colonies. Yeah. So the there are like specific like governmental officials who are sent oftentimes with their families to colonies to like establish a society and like be rich people and they're the ones who you know like or you are like puritans who decide that the English radical Protestants just aren't radical enough and so you go to the Netherlands and they're just doing Dutch stuff and you don't want to do that so you come to America um, so that you can set up your own little space so there's like those people who have money they have enough money to establish themselves and they have enough money to set up universities and they have enough money to bring over educated Europeans um there's another section of people who do not have that. So if you are a European person uh, looking for a life outside of Europe, um, right, you've like, you don't know what to do in England. There's, there's multiple sort of like economic crises that happen in Europe um, in this like early modern period that leave a lot of people with We've talked about this before. Which episode is it? Where we talk about, like, enclosures and... I think that's the private property one. Okay. I think that's literally, like, episode two or three. three. <laughs> uh, but, like, throughout the um, 16th and 17th century, there's a, a lot of issues and plagues and all sorts of stuff that lead people to being like, 
I will literally brave the ocean to find something else, right? Um, and if you're willing to do that, there is... It's like you're already in like a really bad situation. Um, and so you're willing to take on this other really bad situation. And that other really bad situation is indentured servitude. Yeah. Like your options are, <laughs> well, uh, my entire family has been kicked out of our home and driven off our land because yeah. the rich person in the area wants to enclose it and just raise sheep because that's more profitable than having a bunch of peasants. So now I'm a beggar on the streets of London and I'm definitely yeah. going to die of plague. So I guess indentured servitude, yeah. by comparison, you're like, well, I might not die a horrible death this way, maybe? Yeah, or I am, you know, the third son of an urban worker. I can't get an apprenticeship. Um, there is nothing for me here, right? I have yeah, exactly. already, you know, we already live in the urban center. Going to the country is not going to help. Like, I yeah. need to get to a different place where perhaps I could learn a trade yeah. um, and do something, right? So at that point, there are two ways that you can get to America. Um, there is, you can go to a ship captain um, and essentially sell yourself to the ship captain f in order to gain passage on their ship. And then what the ship captain... <laughs> Essentially, you, you sell yourself for a, pers a like number of years to the ship captain to cover the cost of your, you know, what is it, two and a half month journey across yeah, like the your, ocean. Yeah. So your room and board and often clothing for that period of time as you're crossing the ocean. And then when you arrive in the Americas, um, because this would also include Caribbean islands, yeah. um, Central America, anywhere where there's like sugar plantations yeah. um, or tobacco plantations, anything like that. Anywhere in the quote unquote new world, yeah, basically. Exactly. Um, they would then auction off those years to somebody who needed you to work. And mm. that person would not pay you. They would pay the ship captain. And then you worked for, normally it was seven to ten years for yeah. this person um, under whatever conditions it is. They decided you were in. Yeah, they agreed with the ship captain. And there's, like, no oversight of this. And the... the So then the other, the other option is essentially the opposite of that, um, which is called a redemptioner, um, where you make a deal with a ship captain, again, that they are going to provide you all of this stuff to get across the ocean, and then when you get to the New World, you are going to find somebody to pay them for your indenture. Um, yeah. And you normally have a period of like two to three weeks in which to do that. Um, mostly, it seems to be rather desperate people who took this redemptioner's route. Um, people who were coming from areas that were not like seafaring countries um, where they had already traveled for quite a while and perhaps used up their expenses or you know I don't know been struck by highwaymen or whatever for whatever reason didn't have enough money to pay their passage mm -hmm. and could not um, get a contract up front because essentially if you if you're coming over um, and you are trying this redemptioner's route you're sort of at the mercy of whoever will have you yeah um, whereas if you are, if you make the contract ahead of time, someone is buying your contract, you already know the terms that you've agreed to, you already know how long you're supposed to be indentured, what that person is supposed to provide for you, and what kind of work you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, as a redemptioner, you're just sort of going from door to door being like, hey, do you need a servant? Um, which can be much more dangerous. Um. And the idea, essentially, was that this would provide uh, workers for these New World plantations um, and or for, like, smaller farms that, again, needed workers. Uh, and that then those people would become new sort of citizens of the colony. Uh, the records that we have don't point to this faring particularly well for the people who were indentured servants. The, the 
the records that we have, they tend to sort of fall out of records after their servitude is done, which points to people not owning land, to not making wages, to not like having being able to use whatever skill they were supposed to have been taught um, in that period. Um, so un- unless they were, you know, moved west into the Appalachians and yeah. somehow were not like documented as getting a land grant or something like that, or were included on somebody else's land grant, um, falling out of of documents completely is not like a great thing. It doesn't point to like being super successful. Um, so, and by super successful, we mean like, like living, just like being alive, <laughs> and being around to be on a record somewhere. Yeah. So, like, obviously, like, a lot of people aren't documented, but um, for a person who has been documented to then no longer be documented to be living yeah, in exactly. a in an area that is. Um, urbanized and educated enough to be keeping records for you to fall out of the records generally does not bode well um there was a lot of movement west Mm with the appalachians which could point to um because a majority of these indentured servants uh were young men um could point to people moving out to do fur trapping or just moving into places they weren't supposed to be we talk about this in the private property episode about um white settlers moving into lands that the colonial governments had formally agreed with indigenous nations that white settlers would not live on um some of these people might be those folks but generally it's like you sort of just end up with no skills in a country where you don't have any supports and no money because you're not making any money in the yeah. time where you're an indentured exactly. servant. The other period of the other there's one more way in which you could be an indentured servant that makes it to a colony, and that is as a criminal. Um, the old penal colony. Yeah. So um, there are a few a few colonies that were set up specifically as penal colonies. So this would be Australia. Australia is. I think the largest one in terms of landmass, but Georgia as well was a penal colony yeah. originally before they realized that it had like super dope soil and then they started moving rich people there. Um, but yeah, so the what went on with that <laughs> was certain crimes you could be transported. Um, and being transported was like oftentimes, well, for the people that you interacted with in Europe, it was your death sentence because there was no way in you were uh, never there was going no way back. you were coming back, right? You were being moved at the government's expense and then being yeah. sold to someone for the term of your like you know sentence. Yeah. Um, to work for them in whatever conditions they wanted you to. And then afterwards, you know, like you had been transported like try and find a position somewhere like that's gonna go well um this was still a period of like branding and stuff it was not a great time uh that's why like if you watch anything about like 18th century 19 early 19th century australia it's bananas That's what happens when you just send a bunch of starving criminals to the middle of an island. And the thing is that, like, criminality here, we're not talking about necessarily, like, crimes that we would think of. Well, no, they are still criminalized in most of America still. But it's things like vagrancy. Yeah. And or like prostitution or bread. Or, yeah. like, there's a lot of like people like petty theft. Sub- subsistence theft that where if you were caught enough times you were transported. Yeah. I mean basically um, or if you real, pissed off these, the wrong yeah. person. Yeah. The penal colonies were really we want to get rid of these poor people who are breaking yeah. the law because they are starving to death. Yeah, where like it wouldn't so be a poor. good look to like yeah. hang them. Yeah, it's really not a good look to be like this woman who, you know, basically had to be, like, became a prostitute specifically because we gave her no other options in society. 
like you're, you're not gonna hang someone for prostitution but you are gonna send them to australia yeah so um that was sort of how that was so if you were born to an established family already in north america or you were like the son of a merchant somewhere in north america um especially in like new england or quebec you could often like go to university get an education do uh something where you would end up like secure yeah um if you were born in north america to landed parents um especially in the south like that was a dope situation um if you could grow tobacco or um, any of the fiber plants or corn. Like, these were things that were exported, and that would be really great. And you could learn in the cities that popped up around, like, ports, uh, along rivers, or connecting these, like, large agricultural areas. That was great, because you could join guilds or what become unions um learn a trade become an apprentice that system still existed um up until industrialization like the guilds sort of like they become other organizations and like break down or whatever and then you have like industrialization happens and like those systems yeah. obviously overlap a lot and it's very much more complicated than i'm talking about it now we're gonna have a whole episode about that though <laughs> so don't you worry and as you get into the 19th century and industrialization takes over right you have like this school system so you could become a teacher or you know you could get an education um but in early what we call early america in the early republic and like early colonial period um if you were not granted land by the queen and um, or clergy uh moving to america if you were coming uh without the means in which to pay your own way and to set up house and shop when you arrived um things were not great so what you're saying is where you ended up in life really depended on what class you happened to be born into. Wow, what a wild idea. <laughs> totally shocking. What a shocking situation Not at to all find yourself in. to the modern contemporary world. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was not great. Um, and became progressively less great, I think. Um, especially as you get, like, it's just like... Yeah industrialization and the rapid urbanization really makes this as we've talked about before right i always come back to 19th century was bad guys. oh yeah it was a yeah. bad time yeah to be a person yeah <laughs> yeah i feel like unless you were in the like like i mean so the, the top like one the 17th 18th century wasn't great to be an indentured servant right this was a major like this was how you if you were not able to do any of the things that Sonia talked about, how you would get to North America to, like, try and do some of those things. More often than not, from the records, that didn't work out. You just spent your decade as a servant and then probably died um, or tried to make your way west to steal land from somebody. And then um, died of dysentery. <laughs> yes. Oregon Trail. Oregon Trail. Uh, but then, right, the the... Industrial Revolution comes and people start moving into cities and again are like moving across oceans to go to various cities to work in these various industrial settings. Um, and then it's tenement time. Yeah, and things things just get worse and like edu we get compulsory education out of that, but whew. As we talked about in the previous episode, like, that causes its own problems, so, like, people are getting yeah. educated, but also starving, and it's a complicated, weirdo system. So, so what you're saying is the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for both the Earth and people. <laughs> okay, maybe not. Cut that. Well, no. I no, mean, well, I'd say, yes, like, yes. Like, the Industrial Revolution yes, it and its consequences great. were not great when you were living through that. I mean, well, I mean, it's not, not great living through it now. Well, either, yeah, I mean, it's but... not great living through it now. But like, if I if I had to pick, I'm like, well, I guess we have like, no antibiotics now. 
Yeah, that's, that's I mean, that's the thing that, like, I was gonna say is, like, yeah, plastics come yeah. out of this. Yeah. And, like, that's, like, plastics aren't all bad. Plastics yeah. keep people alive. Yeah. Um, they just maybe shouldn't be used in absolutely everything. Yeah. You know, like, plastic drinking straw, great. Plastic in a laboratory and hospital setting, great. Plastic in my clothes, please stop. Yeah, and I mean, like, I mean, to get so Marxist about this, but, like, there is a way to approach the Industrial Revolution as, like, what we sh- how we should be looking at it as we have technology now where we shouldn't need to work as much as we do. Yeah. Um, it's really this system of capitalism and the need for constant growth where we should be looking at like, oh, we've created all of this technology that can make us more productive with less work. Perhaps we should not do so much work. Yeah, I mean, just to point this out there, like, you know, the French Revolution, like when all those, all the, all the poors showed up and chopped off a bunch of people's heads. Yeah, those people worked an average of like 188 days a year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Whereas we on average in our modern society, if you live in the US or Canada, are looking at more like 300 working days a year. Yeah. So like, that's definitely gotten a lot. Like, like literally, starving peasants were doing less days on the job than we are. And that just doesn't make a lot of sense we don't need to work 300 days a year that doesn't make sense yeah give people time to like spend with their family and friends and do things that isn't work at you know wherever we can have green industry we can have sustainable industry and we can have like markets and be making things without capitalism <laughs> and it's really um, i think the capitalism of the 19th century that's really like the, the bad part but i mean also uh, without capitalism and fossil fuels that's a bad part too but if we get rid of capitalism then we all have to share one toothbrush that is 100 percent true can confirm the ussr had one toothbrush <laughs> We're on another tangent again. We're on another tangent. I just, I really, you know. Made like a formal move to like adulthood now in our talking about the year. So we can move on to some more like ritual things now that we've talked about how people used to know what they would be doing with their whole lives as opposed to just rambling into a microphone at 30 years old in your kitchen that you don't own. Excuse me, you're 29. You've still got <laughs> you've still got a few months to uh I'm having a crisis. It's a mental breakdown. <laughs> Maybe I'll just go to grad school about it. A <laughs> We'll see you guys next week. Bye. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Bobbyaga project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week!